Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Having some technical difficulties this morning, and it's causing a little anxiety in my heart, and I'm battling a sickness because my children have been nothing but human uh, disease passer uh, buyers in my home, and so um, some of my kids are not here along with my better half uh, because, you know, they got the brunt of it, but for some reason, God has spared me so I can come today. So uh, let's just ask for the Lord to bless our time together, asking him to speak to us as um, yours truly, an unworthy servant, preaches the word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. <clears throat> you know what we need to hear. You know how we need to hear it. And you know what we need to do in response. And we ask, O oh Lord, would you do that magnificent work through your Holy Spirit? And may the word of God do its penetrating work as we have just read, cutting through and slicing to the very minute detail of the very essence of who we are, getting to the parts of our lives that we could never reach, parts of us that we can never become aware or discover upon ourselves. We ask now that you would truly resonate in our hearts a deep abiding conviction that you are God and we are not, and you have called us to be in loving relationship with you. Father, I pray for all of us here this morning who may be battling physical, emotional, or even relational brokenness and sorrow. God, would your word today bring healing and renewal so that we may leave this place empowered and equipped to do a reckoning of work that will change this world upside down as your first servants did in the days of the early church. Father, would you now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So today we're beginning a new sermon series that's going to take us to the next four Sundays, and I've decided to entitle this series, It Feels So Wrong, It Must Be Right. It feels so wrong, it must be right. And if that sounds paradoxically familiar and yet strange, it's because it's a playoff of a very familiar cultural phrase that we see so often in our day and age, which is, it feels so right, it can't be wrong. You've heard that before, right? It feels so right, it can't be wrong. And what that phrase is trying to convey is that when something feels good, when something feels pleasurable, when something feels encouraging, then it must be valid, it must be appropriate, it must be right. It's a cultural phrase that's become the universal truth in our culture today to where everyone believes this idea that if it feels good, it must be right. Now, if that is true, and I believe that it is, that means many other people also agree with the opposite form of that phrase, which just says, if it feels wrong, then it must not be right, right? If it feels bad, it must not be good. It must not be true. It must not be valid. It must not be appropriate. Now, if these cultural phrases really embody the conviction of so many in our society today, and I believe it does, then it makes total sense why so many do not want to accept Christianity. Why? Well, consider these wise words from the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis as he describes the Christian faith. Listen to what he says, quote, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. End quote. What's he saying? 
He's saying, if you believe this notion that if something feels uh, good, it must be right, or feels so right that it can't be wrong, then you will never believe that Christianity is true, that Christianity is right. Why? Because Lewis understood what the Bible is always teaching us all the time. And maybe, for those of you here investigating Christianity, what you've already discovered. And that is, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth hurts a lot to where something that is true won't always feel good to believe. When something is right may not always feel comfortable living out to where doing the right thing may not always feel comfortable, right? And so for the next few weeks, the next four Sundays, I want to spotlight four common feelings that Christians feel all the time that don't feel good, that are not encouraging, that is not uplifting, and yet scripture says if you are feeling it, it is an indication that you have genuine faith, real genuine faith, to where even though it feels wrong, it is and it must be right. Today, we take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, where we're going to take a look at the first common universal feeling that many Christians should feel, even though they may not want to, and that is this chronic feeling of homesickness, or more specifically, longing for a home that you've never been to. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. Number one, we're first going to talk about the pervasive problem of homesickness. The pervasive problem of homesickness. Number two, the wrong way we try to alleviate our homesickness. And then finally, the solution to our homesickness. The pervasive problem of it, the wrong way we try to alleviate it, and finally the solution. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the pervasive problem of homesickness. Now, one of the questions that may be going through your head right now is probably this. Uh, Pastor... We just heard this passage being beautifully read by Monica. Where are you even getting this idea of homesickness? Because as it was just read, the word homesickness doesn't even come up whatsoever. In fact, we don't even see the word home. So where are you getting this idea that the author of Hebrews is even talking about this very issue of homesickness? Great question. Let me answer that right now. You'll notice in our passage a recurring word scattered throughout these verses, right? It's the word rest. rest. More specifically, it's referring to God's rest because that's the person who's talking when he says, they will not enter my rest. Okay? That is what rest is. It's referring to God's rest. Obviously, the question becomes, what is this rest of God that the author of Hebrews is speaking about? Well, to answer that, it would be helpful to back up one chapter prior to this, Hebrews chapter 3, where starting in verse 14, we read this, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believe, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against? Against God, even though they heard his voice. Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpse lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Here again, we come across this notion of God's rest, but now. We have more helpful historical background to where we can decipher what this rest of God is. Let me explain. Notice the author of Hebrews 
zeroes in on the story of the Exodus where we remember of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt after they've been enslaved for over 400 years by the Egyptians. And further notice that the author zeroes in on the part of the story where God's people, after witnessing God's amazing supernatural works to protect and to provide, rebel against God. And so what happens as a result? That entire adult generation forfeits the blessing of entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land, destined to be their home. And it was this promised land, the land of Canaan, that God is referring to as my rest. The rest that they would not enter into. So putting all this together, what is this rest of God? What is it? It's home. It's the place where they belong, where you belong right? It's that place that you finally get to settle and rest, i.e. Sabbath, right? Because that's what you do when you rest. You are Sabbathing from all the chaos and pain and sorrows of life. I mean, isn't that the first place that we think of whenever we find ourselves in a very stressful, tumultuous situation? Don't we think or even say out loud whenever we're in moments like that, man, I just want to go home, right? I want to go home. Well, that is what God's rest is. It's the place that we call home. It is our promised land. Now, I know some of you in here who tend to be on the more literal side of things, you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, are you saying that when I'm homesick that I'm really longing to go to the Middle East? Are you saying that the literal promised land, the land of Canaan, that makes up Jordan and Israel and the West Bank, that's, that's what my heart really longs for? Are you saying that I have to go to the literal land of Canaan? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Well, what am I saying? Well, come back to our passage for today, Hebrews 4, and let's zero in on verses 8 to 9, where it says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here the author goes back to the story of the Exodus, but this time he fast-forwards to the next generation that came after the rebellious one that was under the leadership of Moses. And speaking of Moses, at this point in the story, he is dead. Okay, And his apprentice, Joshua, has now been given the charge of leading the remainder people who are alive into the promised land. And as we read the book of Joshua, he succeeded in doing that. Joshua was successful in bringing God's people into the land of Canaan, the promised land, which is why it's a little confusing when you read the author of Hebrews saying that Joshua failed in giving his people rest. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read in the end of Joshua that Joshua was successful in getting his people, God's people, into the land of Canaan, the promised land, home? But yet, as we just read in verses 8 and 9, it just said that Joshua failed to where now there's another rest still waiting for the people of God. How do you make sense of that? The only way that you can understand that is if the home that Israel went into in the land of Canaan wasn't really their real home. Not in the ultimate sense. In other words, when Israel went into Canaan, yes, they were home, and yet they weren't really home. Now, if that is true of them, what does that say about us? Do you know what it says? It says, if you struggle with the longing for home, if you have a chronic homesickness within you, the home you are longing for is not the one that you grew up in, nor is it the one that you live in now where you raise your family. You see, the author of Hebrews is trying to draw, us attention, draw our attention to, not to a specific place on earth, but to a specific hunger in the human heart. A hunger for a home that none of us have been to yet. 
And because that is so, that tells us, according to the Bible, that every generation of God's people have chronically been frustrated because this longing for home, this homesickness has not been alleviated for any of God's people throughout any of its generations of existence. This is why it says what it does in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words... There is a longing for home that every generation of God's people have struggled with. Whether you're talking about Moses' generation, Joshua's generation, the generation of David, which is referred to in verse 7, or the generation of the author of Hebrews, and get what, guess what other generation? That's right, your generation, my gen- our generation. And it will be the same for the next generation to come, our children's generation. Every generation of God's people since the beginning of the human race have chronically struggled with this haunting sense that they are not home yet and they're always hungering to get back home. Now, when you couple that with some of the sociological data that is out there, that profiles the behavior of people in our culture, you come to discover that this longing for home is not uniquely a Christian problem. Case in point, according to the U.S. Census, as of 2015, on average, over 40 million Americans move every single year. Did you know that? According to U.S. Census of 2015, over 40 million people move every single year. That's 14% of the U.S. population. And when you consider that another 14% moves the following year, the numbers add up, which means, on average, people in this country move about 12 times throughout their lifetime. 12 times. Now, here's the question. How do you come to understand this chronic mobility that people seem to be plagued with in our society, almost as if they're looking for something or chasing after something. Well, I want to read to you a quote by Pastor Dr. M. Craig Barnes, who's currently the president of Princeton Seminary. I think he hits a nail on the head when he says this. Why are so many of us constantly moving from one place to another? If you ask people that question, and I certainly ask plenty, the most common answer involves work. As the geographer David Sofer has claims, it is the property of vegetables to remain rooted. Our society has taught us from an early age to move ahead in life, and after going to college, we discover that our next move is going to be the getting the best job that we can, and then on to a better job, and then a better one after that. These jobs are usually all in different places. Work may be the excuse for our transiency and may even be the only reason of which we are consciously aware. But that pastor in me has been digging deeper to discover that what it is that drives us to accept these job offers that make us pack up and take off again. The answers of the scripture is that from the beginning we have been searching for paradise. We think that the next place where a more lucrative job is waiting will afford a better chance of creating it for ourselves, but it never quite works out that way. The house may be bigger, but we we were never really looking for that. We're looking for home. According to Dr. Barnes, this pervasive homesickness that every generation of God's people have struggled with is not only uniquely our problem, It's a human problem, and I think he's right on when he says that. And just like any problem, the natural human instinct is, how do we solve it? But of course, with any attempt of solving a problem, there's always the risk attached of incorrectly solving that problem, right? And this problem in particular of trying to alleviate our longing for home is a problem that so many incorrectly try to solve all the time. And to further explain what I mean, let me go to my next point, the wrong way we try to alleviate our homesickness. Skip on down to the middle of our passage and read again with me what it says in verse 11, where the author says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, there are two words in this verse that I think are very important for us to realize. The first of which is the one that we see in the beginning of the middle of verse 11. That's the word strive. Strive. To strive is a very, very important word for the author of Hebrews. Why? Well, what does it mean when you're striving for something? What are you doing when you are a striver? You're doing something with incredible due diligence, right? You're struggling. You're laboring to acquire something. In other words, when you strive, you really, really want something that you currently do not possess. And here's the thing. The thing that you are striving for by the nature of striving itself is not something that is superficial in your mind. It's not a trivial thing. It's not an unimportant, insignificant thing. No, it's something that is so vital to your life, something that you think is so important, that is such a priority, that it compels you to strive in the first place. Now, with that in mind, consider what New Testament scholar Philip Hughes says about this word in this passage. He writes this, quote, the verb translated strive here means to make haste, to be in earnest, to concentrate one's energies on the achievement of the goal. Thus, this exhortation incites the recipients of the letter to display a spirit of zeal. It calls for full seriousness and intensity. It's as if he is saying, be serious, be earnest, do not trifle, do not trifle. See, when it comes to the author of Hebrews, this longing for home, that's a serious condition. It's not something that you should just dismiss as some trivial thing that you're just going through right now. No, this is something that you cannot ignore. You cannot afford to ignore. Hence, you need to strive. You need to do something about it. But he goes on to say, be careful on how you strive. And this leads to the second word that is very important for us. And it's the word right before rest in verse 11. And it's the word that. The author of Hebrews says, make sure you enter into not just a rest or any rest, but that rest. What does that word that do to the word rest? It specifies it, right? In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying that this longing for home that you want to have satiated, this longing for home that you finally want to get fulfilled is asking for a specific type of rest. Now, by saying it that way, what is he warning us about tacitly? Is he not warning that when you search for this rest, when you long for the place that you can call home, that there is the real danger that you could look to the wrong thing or the wrong place or even the wrong person to be that rest, right? That you could go end up in the wrong place that you think is where you belong, but in fact you don't? Yes, indeed. That's what he is saying to us. And so the question that becomes of us now is, what is this specific rest that the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that we chase after rather than anything else that serves as a counterfeit. Pastor Mark Buchanan tells us perfectly in his book, listen to what he says, quote, homesickness, this perpetual experience of missing something usually gets misdiagnosed and so wrongly treated. All our, all our lives, we take hold of the wrong thing, go to the wrong place, eat the wrong food. We drink too much, sleep too much, work too long, take too many vacations or too few, all in the faint hope that this will finally satisfy us and so silence the hunger within. We go from relationship to relationship, job to job, house to house, church to church, convinced that this one is the right one. It's not, and it won't ever be. Better to figure it out now. The world is booby-trapped. 
It's rigged for disappointment. On earth, everything falls short of some hoped-for ideal. Everything good down here has a tragic brevity and a funny aftertaste to it. It all falls short and shortly falls apart. None of it possesses any ultimacy. Here is the surprise. God made us this way. He made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill and untamed restlessness that no discovery can still it's not the wanting that corrupts us what corrupts us is the wanting that's misplaced set on the wrong thing if we don't understand that if we don't understand that god has set eternity in our hearts to make us heavenly minded we skew or subvert subvert excuse me the yearning and we scatter it in a thousand wrong directions what's he saying he's saying that this homesickness that we all struggle with cannot be satiated with anything, any place, or any person of this earth. Because the home that we're longing for is heaven. God's dwelling place. You know why? Because God is our home. And where he is, is where we want to be, because that is where we belong. That is the home that we've never been to. That is the home that every human being is homesick for. We are all longing for heaven. Now, Christian, do you realize what that means? It means if you're chronically struggling with this sense that you always feel like you're not home, right? That you always feel like you're not where you belong. Even when you're surrounded by your loved ones and friends and people you grew up with, even if you're still living, even if you constantly feel this dissatisfaction with life that makes it feel like an inconsolable longing within you, that is not an indication that you're a spoiled brat. And it certainly doesn't mean that you don't have true faith. No, quite the opposite. It is an indication that your faith is right, that you have genuine faith. But conversely, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and what I'm talking about right now makes no sense to you, you're like, well, homesickness. I don't struggle with homesickness. I don't have any longing for home. And you say, I'm a genuine follower of Jesus. I'm sorry to say this. There may not be anything genuine about your faith whatsoever. If there is no sense of longing to go home in you throughout your Christian faith, there might be nothing Christian about your faith at all. Think about that for a moment, right? Or if I could put it this way, if you don't have a longing for heaven, that means you don't see heaven as your home, which means the only place that you have left is earth. That you see this place as the place where you belong. And the moment you feel that way is the moment where you will start satisfying your longing for home in the wrong way because that means you're in a mindset where you will start looking at this life and this place and this earth as your ultimate destination. And you are in spiritual danger because at that point, you become what one pastor calls an earthbound Christian. An earthbound Christian. What in the world is that? Well, listen to what the pastor says. Joe Stoll, he writes this, quote, Earthbound Christians live the important segments of their lives only in the context of this world. Their expectations, dreams, plans, hopes, and schemes relate to what they can acquire and experience now. Money, careers, family, retirement, and time are managed and manipulated by the tyranny of temporalism. Those in this category are far more susceptible to greed, the pursuit of immediate peace and pleasure, and a success that is defined by competence and credentials that enhance our own sense of significance. 
Eternity is not the guide for earthbound believers, so concepts like investing in the world to come have little influence on them. They see their careers as platforms for their own significance and security, not as a means to advance the eternal kingdom of Christ or as a platform upon which to stage the values of the king. Obedience to the point of discomfort, loss, or suffering is an unthinkable option since they have been trained to expect peace, satisfaction, and emotional fulfillment here on earth. That is an earthbound Christian. And let me ask you right now, NCF, do you see yourself as I read that description to you? Let's ask an honest question here this morning. Do you think he is describing you? Because I think he's describing me sometimes, many times, right? What this tells us is that it's so easy for any of us, any of us, to fulfill our longing for home the wrong way. To where instead of directing it in its proper direction to the proper person, we direct it to the wrong place, to the wrong person, to the wrong things. Because we direct it here. To where our faith has no vertical dimension. It's all horizontal. It's all flesh. It's all things that eventually, Scripture says, will fade away. And so the question that we're here to ask and answer is, how do we make sure that we don't make that vital mistake and this leads me to the final point the solution to our homesickness in order to figure out how to ensure we don't make this mistake we first have to understand why we make this mistake in the first place we first need to understand why we try to alleviate our homesickness the wrong way and to answer that we go to verse 11 And I want you to pay special attention to the second half of the verse where it reads, let us together strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here, the author of Hebrews is indirectly referring to a bunch of people who claim to be genuine God followers, but in reality, they were earthbound Christians. And because that was the case, they forfeited the home that they were destined to get to, that they will never be able to get home. And the question is, why? How did that happen? Why did they forfeit home? Well, it says in the very last word that ends verse 11, because of what? Disobedience. People who forfeit home do so because of disobedience and therein lies the question disobedience in what way what specific sin have these people committed to where it would warrant them to never be able to get home verse 7 it tells us today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts there it is do not harden your hearts the reason why people who call themselves god's people never end up where God's people belong, i.e. home, is because they have hardened their hearts. Do you know what it means when the Bible says that a person has hardened their hearts? It means their heart is like a rock. If you try to squeeze a rock to change it, right? If you try to treat it like it's a ball of Play-Doh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to change, right? A hardened heart is an unchangeable heart. It's a heart that is stubborn to where it refuses to change in any way, right? When the Bible says that a person has an unch- a hardened heart, it means that they don't have a teachable heart. That they're so stubbornly convinced of something to where they can never change their mind because, they think that they're, because the thing that they're convinced of is something that in their mind can never become unconvincing. So here's the question. What is the thing that they are convinced of that led to the disobedience that caused them to forfeit home? 
What is the very thing that they were convinced of that in their mind they can never be unconvinced of? Verse 12. Listen to what it says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he mu- we must give an account. Philip Hughes who was a professor at Westminster many years ago, says this in his commentary, nothing could be more inaccessible and intangible, humanly speaking, than the notions and motives concealed in the furthest depths of man's mind. No scalpel can dissect them. No electronic detector can discover them. Only God's word can pierce through to this intangible realm, and it does so in a manner that is both dynamic and critical. The heart here, of course, is not the organ, but designates in scripture the central seat of human personality, the deep font of man's life in all of its aspects, spiritual intellectual moral and emotional it is here in this radical center of human selfhood that the word of god does its work what is he saying he's saying god's word which is another way of saying god's voice right is the only word that can really tell you who you are you see the thing that this people this group of people right that they would not be convinced of is that god's word is truthful you see this generation that forfeited home was a generation that stubbornly refused to believe that god's word was something to hear or to listen to that's why he says in verse 7 if you will listen to his voice see that's what the generation that did not get into the promised land refused to do they refused to listen to what god said and the reason why they refused is because they didn't believe what the author of hebrew says right here about god's word that it's able to tell you who you really are In a sense, they were saying, God doesn't know me. I know me. His words don't tell me what I am. My words tell me what I am. Right? And as a result, they refuse to listen. They refuse to listen to the voice of God. They refuse to submit to God's word. And because of that, they would not concede to the identity that God was saying through his voice, through his word said about them and here's the thing once you don't know your identity because of what god's word says about you what does that lead to you don't know where you belong and when you don't know where you belong you don't know where your home is you see your identity is so vitally linked to where you belong to where your home is take a listen to this article i came across a couple days ago it's the elite daily article entitled what it's like when you're homesick but you're already home The author writes this, quote, I was homesick, but I was already home. How could I be feeling so desperately homesick when I was home? Guilt and confusion joined forces and invaded my brain. After all, I was living in my parents' house, sleeping in the bed I grew up in, taking residence in all the familiar smells that shaped the simple, untainted memories of my childhood. I immersed myself in everything that usually made me feel safe and connected. I spent eons of times drinking tea in the kitchen with my mother, curled up in the same secret spot where I used to smoke cigarettes as an angst-driven teenager. I tucked my frame in the same corner I would seek solace in which life felt too hard to deal with. Nothing provided relief because I wasn't homesick for a place because home isn't really a tangible place. Home is a feeling. Home is you. When you've lost sight of who you are, nowhere in the world will ever feel like home. 
You will feel homesick all the time when you're disconnected from yourself. Even when swaddled into the oh-so-familiar safe arms of home, nowhere is safe when your mind is in a safe place. I missed myself. I had wandered away from the bright, happy, confident girl I used to be. I had lost her, and I was not home. This non-Christian author has recognized that there is a deep connection to who you think you are, your identity, and where you ultimately belong. You know, if you ever see a sad situation like a child being lost, you're at the mall, you're at the airport, and you see a little kid and he's lost or she's lost, what is one of the first few questions that you ask that kid right away, other than, are you lost, sweetie? What's your name? Right? Why is it that the first thing that we want to understand is the identity of this child? Because when you understand the identity of that child, you can then connect where that child belongs, right? That's also true when it comes to our identity as well and where we belong. And according to God, he says, you have an identity. My voice, my word gives you this identity, right? And that is what the word of God tells us all the time, most preeminently in the central message of the word of God, which is what? the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news message that says God is our creator. Okay? But he's not the kind of creator who's like an inventor where he creates us to be like a tool so he can just use us to make his life more convenient or better. God is not the kind of creator where he's like a chef making a succulent dish so that he can just devour and satisfy his appetites. No. The Bible says that God is our creator because he has made us in his image the way my children are made in my image, okay? In other words, God created us to be his children so that he could give us joy and happiness that is attached to the fact that we are children of God. That is the essence of why we exist. We were created to be loved by God. We were created to be ravished with mercy and kindness and goodness and love and acceptance by God. That is the essence of our true identity. But the gospel goes on to say that we refuse to listen to that voice. We refuse to accept that identity. And so we reject God by rejecting the identity he's given to us by refusing to reflect him. By choosing to reflect being image bearers to where we end up being the complete opposite of who he is. And so unlike God, we do use people like they're tools, right? So that they can make our lives better. Unlike God, we do see other people as people we should devour for our own satisfaction, for our own appetites. Unlike God, we, make, we take from others so that they can make us joyful and happy rather than giving to others so that they could be joyful and happy. You see? And because this is the way that we are, God had every right to disown us. He had every right to cast us out. He had every right to say, you're no child of mine. But this is where the gospel becomes beautiful because the gospel goes on to say that God nevertheless still chose to love you still chose to accept you still chose to embrace you and to still call you his own not by accepting you as a sinner but by paying for your sins right by coming into the world as Jesus Christ taking on the role of a servant as your substitute savior to where he suffered the full consequences and penalty of all your sins, all of your sins, 
so that if you make him your Lord and Savior, if you trust in what his work on the cross has done for you, he can now say, this is who you are. You are my beloved, and this is where you belong. This is home. See, it's when you understand and comprehend this love of God, this merciful love of Jesus that is found only in the gospel, no other faith, no other teaching, no other philosophy, but only in the gospel, in the word of God, that contains the voice of God, then and only then will you be understanding where you belong, where your home is. And the more you'll be able to direct your longing for home to its proper destination. Listen to the final quote from Pastor Joel Stoll. He writes, The more intimate our walk and experience with Christ here, the more we will long for heaven, and the sooner it will become the instinctive point of reference for us. Do you want to long for heaven? Then cultivate a deepening relationship with Christ. If our hearts lean toward Christ, who is in heaven, we'll be drawn there in our thoughts and our emotions. Here's my question. Are you homesick? Do you long for home? Let me go right into the next steps here because I think it's such an important question. If you're here today and you feel that you have this longing for home and today's message really resonated with you, and you're ready to make Jesus Lord and Savior, take this time right now to pray, go to the Lord, and ask him to make you his own, to restore you back to what you were created to be, to be a child of God by trusting in Jesus in faith, right? That he died on the cross for your sins. Repent and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Make him the center of your life. Make your relationship with him the purpose of your existence. And then for the rest of you, I really want to ask you, do you struggle with a longing for home? You know, do you struggle with this sense that I just want to go home? Is that something that is always pervading your mind? You know, I hope that it is. And if it's not, you have to ask yourself, what am I looking to to satisfy my longing for home if it's not God, if it's not heaven, if it's not through Jesus? Right? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? Maybe I can ask you guys to really lift it up to the Lord and repent and ask him, to help you redirect your longing for home in its proper place. And then maybe you can share some of this finally with your Oikos group members. C.S. Lewis once said that the people who did the most good in this world were the ones who had faith in the world to come. Do you have that underlying conviction that this is not where you belong? But the place where you do belong should inspire you to make this world a better place so that people can get a foretaste of the world to come. My hope and prayer, NCF, is that you will never be satisfied in your longing for home as long as you live on this earth. My hope and prayer that if any of you guys need to you know, leave this place right, to another part of the country for another job, right, for another, it's not because you're trying to do this. If that is the case, that you, you're setting yourself up for tremendous, tremendous disappointment. And chances are you're becoming an earthbound Christian. Can I challenge all of us, including myself, that we would come together and we would maintain our citizenship of heaven so that we can fulfill our vision of being a blessing to this world. That's my charge and that's my prayer for all of us. Let's ask God to do that now. Let's pray. Father, we long for home. We have an inconsolable longing that just seems 
Father, it just feels so wrong, and yet we know there's something right about it as well. We know that this is not where we belong. We know that this is not where you've called us to find our hope in Sabbath. We know that there is a final resting place where we can finally be at peace. But Lord, until then, Lord, help us to maintain our longing for home. Help us to maintain our homesickness so that we would never feel we could ever be fully at ease to where we could ever feel we're completely settled. Lord, even the homes that we are trying to build up now for ourselves and for our children, Lord, help us to remember that this is not our home. Help us to teach our children that this is not their home either. But instead, help us to prepare them and ourselves for the home that you have provided for us, Lord Jesus, the home that even now you are preparing a place for us to be in. God, would you help us now as your people to live as resident aliens, to be exiles, so that we would know where our true satisfaction, where our true rest is found. It's found in you, in your dwelling place. Help us to maintain it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.